You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. So I'm here with Chris Date, and I want to talk to you about um, salvation, soteriology, um, you know, the, the study of how we become Christians, um, the study of how we're saved, which is a really, really broad topic and probably nothing we're going to be able to sort of answer all the questions sure. in one, in one uh, fell swoop. But the reason I want to talk to you about it is because I know you tend to, and I, I want to make sure that I use the words right, you definitely tend to lean more reformed in your understanding For of sure. Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that sometimes people who hear the word reformed or, or hear that word think of, oh, these are the people that believe that God is pulling all the strings on puppets and, and all of that, which I think you probably would kick back against this absolutely yeah. at all. I want to talk about salvation, though. When people come to faith and they say, Jesus is now my Lord and Savior, many people would say that's a decision that we make, and that then gets us into heaven. There's other people that would say, no, if God had not regenerated your heart first, you wouldn't be able to make that, that statement. Um, t- talk about that. Talk to, to somebody out there that just really cares about this issue, not somebody who's looking to pick a fight or to see what side you're on just to argue, just talking as, as clearly as you can from your perspective. How do you see somebody comes to faith? Well, so I think that my read of scripture, very fallible as my reading is, um, is that we are, from the moment we are conceived, we are uh, by our very nature rebels, okay. by nature children of wrath, okay. Paul says. And so David you know, writes about how he, he was knitted together in his mother's womb in sin it seems to me that the message of Scripture is that we are deeply and irreparably broken from the moment we are conceived, irreparably apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that when anybody is presented with the um, option of either continuing to exercise what they perceive to be autonomy or hand over their life to God, that's the last thing we want to do. We want to be the, the the masters of our own destiny. We want to be. We want to make the decision. We want to say what's right and wrong. We want to believe. What we want to believe, etc. The Christian call is not merely having faith in Christ and being saved. It's about giving everything of me over to the um, ownership of Christ, the lordship of Christ. So I think it does indeed require a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to change our heart, okay. such that instead of being oriented away from God in our inclinations, we are instead oriented toward him. And it's only at that point that any of us will, of our own accord, embrace Christ. But that doesn't mean we're not making the choice. Mm-hmm. It just means, and by the way, it doesn't mean that the person who isn't, uh, doesn't have their heart transformed isn't making a choice either. They are. But the choice they're making is the one they want, which is everything but God. Mm-hmm. Would you hold, and, and you may have to de- define this because I want to make sure anybody who's listening or watching completely understands this. Would you hold to what would be referred to as sort of the uh, an understanding of original sin, that, that, that we are born sinners? Or would you take a view that, you know, people are basically pretty good and, um, you know, people are, you know, you know, don't be so hard on everybody? What's your view there and how do you get there? Well, so I do hold to about as strong of a doctrine of original sin as possible. Um, and that means, by the way, that I affirm original guilt. Paul seems to say in Romans 5 that we sinned in Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that we are counted as 
um, guilty of Adam's sin because we he is our federal head mm-hmm. um, until Christ becomes our federal head. Uh, but but even setting the doctrine of original guilt aside for a moment, at the very least, a, a, a less strong but still robust doctrine of original sin would say that because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of their fall, um, all of their progeny from the moment they are conceived, their hearts are oriented away from God. They want to rebel against God. They want everything but God. Um, and I think that is why we see by Genesis 6, humankind is absolutely horrible to each other. And the only people that are even remotely decent is Noah and his family. It's because we are wicked and corrupt from the moment we're conceived. It's our nature to do evil and to, uh, to fight against what God is doing. So somebody who comes along and says, well, Chris, I hear you, but man, when a little baby's born, man, they're sweet as can be. You know, and yeah, you know, along the way, they learn, learn social things um, and they may have a couple of cues, but even a little baby will, will take a pacifier and want to share it with you. They'll, they'll have, find some food and want to bring it to you. Don't we just sin when we sin or is it just really, is it really who we are? And, you know, and how do you, what do you say to somebody who's like, man, that, that just, that just pushes me away when I hear that I'm a sinner um, and that I'm evil and wicked because I don't see myself as evil and wicked. Well, of course, nobody who's evil and wicked is going <laughs> to see him or herself as evil and wicked. I'm, I'm sure Hitler, for example, thought he was the cat's pajamas, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I've had four kids. And while it is true that occasionally an infant or a toddler is going to share his or her pacifier or, or food or whatever, that's the minority. Usually they're, they're biting and slapping and fighting and whining and crying to get what they want. They're incredibly selfish. And, and um, I don't think it's true that they learn to do evil. I think they learn to do good. Okay. Um, and so you don't have to be, you don't have to parent children into being evil. That comes naturally. You have to parent children into being decent people. Okay. Um, apart, and apart from that parenting, it's not going to happen. Let's sort of um, take some of this logical steps. We're born in sin, and we are irreparably separated from God. How, how then does one become a Christian? And if becoming a Christian is the priority of God, does God give every single person that ability? You know, um, Wesleyans would call it provenient grace. Um, you know, the average person may have no idea who John Wesley is or what provenient grace means. But, you know, is there, is there a world in which all people have the same opportunity to come to faith or is that not the case? Well, it's interesting because the only places where I see scripture talking about some sort of universally accessible information about God uh-huh. is in passages like Romans 1, okay. where it's where the message is not at all, hey, everybody's got the information and some people, uh, you know, so some people might choose it. No, it says everybody is without excuse. You know, that's what Paul goes on to say in Romans. Um, he, he says that people who uh, see all the evidence for God's existence and his power and his glory they see that, but all they do is rebel against it and turn to idols, lifeless idols. Let me jump in here. In that passage in Romans 1, it says that, um, that what can be known about God um, is clearly known to, to them, but they have, they've decided not to worship God, but they've worshiped um, 
in theology, and, and again, these are just words, um, we have the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Um, general revelation would be the things that we sort of intuit on our own. Special revelation would be where we truly understand more of where God is coming from. The book of nature, the book of scripture. Yes. So when we when we look at Romans 1 and we see that what can be made known about God is clear to them and they are without excuse, does that answer the question of when somebody's on an island and never heard or somebody was raised in the Middle East? Is Paul there saying that they've got enough information to be justly condemned? And that's absolutely. And and, and the reason, and I think this is really important, I don't see any evidence in scripture that what condemns us to hell, however we understand that, is our rejection of Christ. Christ is like the uh, pardon that the the governor grants to somebody who's about to be killed on the the electric chair, right? it's not, they don't go to the electric chair because they're not pardoned. They go to the electric chair because they committed a murder spree. But if somebody escapes the electric chair, it's because they've been pardoned. So in the same way, yeah, I do think that the person on an island and, and uh, has not been exposed to any sorts of worldviews or whatever, they still see the order in creation. They see the beauty in creation. They see God's power and what has been made. And yet, oh, and by the way, they also have the tablet written on their hearts of God's moral standard. Um, it's certainly flawed. What's, you know, we're, we're, we're broken. And so it, our, our sense of justice and right and wrong is, is flawed, but it's there. And that makes no sense on an, um, in a godless world. So I do think that somebody on the island that you're talking about is, does have enough information to be justly condemned. So the question, how does one um, escape that predicament? It seems to me to be that they are exposed to the gospel, and God changes their heart such that they will embrace that saving gospel. So what happens to the person who has not heard the gospel? Well, this is certainly a debate within Christianity, even even in Reformed circles. Um, There are Reformed people who say that God may elect, that's the word that we use to describe his unconditional choice of who he will save, uh, in eternity past, before anybody has done anything good or bad, um, that that election, uh, he, he may indeed elect people who have never heard of the gospel and never embraced Christ, or he may have infants who are elect but who die before they can embrace saving faith in Christ. Um, and, and I think that view deserves to be given a fair hearing, but it's not what I see in Scripture. I, what I see in Scripture is that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. So my personal position is that somebody who has never heard the gospel um, and, and hasn't embraced Christ, will indeed um, not be saved. But again, it's not because they've rejected the Christ they haven't heard of. It's because they've sinned and they know they've sinned. What would be unfair is just letting, letting everybody off the hook, it seems to me. Mm. Um, what would be unfair is if God were just to sort of wink at sin and let anybody do what they want and there'd be no consequences for it. Um, now, if the claim is that it's unfair that he would save some and not everybody, um, I don't see why God is obligated to save everybody when everybody rejects him. Would fair be hell in whatever that definition is, and grace would be heaven? That's exactly right. It's people who are saved are not treated fairly. They're treated graciously. They're treated mercifully. Um, and we can speculate as to why God has chosen to save, to show grace, saving grace, because, of course, there's also common grace, right? It, the, even the worst uh, sinner who rejects Christ 
Um, and even the one who is in the most imaginable uh, of, of poverty and stuff mm. still gets to breathe, gets to live. They get to experience things. Life itself is a beautiful gift. So everybody gets grace. But if, if God only shows saving grace to some, um, we can speculate as to why that might be. Paul gives some hint, I think, in Romans uh, 9, where he talks about how God may desire to show the, the riches of his mercy uh, to his vessels of mercy by means of showing what destruction is waiting those who reject him. Right? Um, and there are other ways we could speculate about it. But, um, but if we're right, and if it's only some God chooses to show, uh, chooses to save, that's grace. That's not fairness. If, if God were fair to everybody, we'd all go. How did you come to that view? And what were, what were some scriptures that maybe those that are out there going, this is crazy. I mean, I've never heard anything like this before. And there'll be some out there that go, oh, this is exactly where I'm at. But you always have a mixture. How did you, how did you get to where you are? Did you start there? Did you start as a Reformed person? Did you change into a Reformed person? Um, walk through that process. So I, when I was saved uh, 22 years ago, when I was 20 years old, I uh, was not raised in a Christian home, and I was a red-blooded, freedom-loving American, and so I cherished the idea of freedom as I understood it. And without knowing the terminology of libertarian free will, which is the ability to choose or to choose otherwise, et cetera, without knowing that terminology, I just assumed that's what was going on. Um, but very early on, on in my faith, I was uh, befriended by somebody who has since become my best friend and somebody who discipled me for a very long time. And in the, those early formative years of my faith, he challenged me with what we call the doctrines of grace, right? The, the five points of Calvinism. And I fought it tooth and nail at first. Like I really resisted it, not because I didn't think the scripture was there. Quite the contrary. I couldn't, I couldn't, def I couldn't explain the scriptures that he was presenting me with. But I fought it because at this time, I was a new Christian and my wife wasn't yet. And the thought that God might have predestined me to believe, but not my beloved wife, um, grated at me. And I just, I hated that concept. But then there's something that, uh, there was a realization I came to. And I'm not saying that this realization is something that everybody should embrace, but it is what made sense to me then and continues to make sense to me to this day. And that is, if I've got to choose um, who, in whose hands my wife's choice to be saved is ultimately in, would I rather that be in her sinning, fallible, broken hands or the perfect, pure, and loving, and righteous, and trustworthy God um, who, uh, who I was, who, who, the concept of whose sovereignty I was, I was pushing back against? And it made me, and, it, and I came to realize I would much rather that decision be in his hands than in hers. And, and so that has helped me, that, it was that that, made, that allowed me to overcome the uh, hostility that I felt toward the view initially. But as for specific verses, things that convinced me of it then and continue to convince me of it to this day, um, it's passages like John 6, 44, no one can come to me um, except unless the Father draws him. Um, that word draws it does not mean halkuo. It does not mean to woo, to call, to invite. It means to pull. Right to to yank from one place to another. It's the same word that is used to describe yanking a net out of a sea full of fish or a sword out of a sheep. Right, um, and, and and it doesn't say uh, if you're you're drawn to me uh, or everybody's being drawn to me and some come to me. No, it's those who are drawn do come. And by the way, Jesus says it is that person, the one who is drawn, whom I will raise on the last day. 
So there seems to me to be this um, clear picture of God having to overcome our natural uh, rebellion. And when he does so, we necessarily come to him. Also, um, I find in, in terms of uh, other passages that talk about God working in us to enable us to believe, you've got Lydia, I think, in the book of Acts, who Luke says God opened her eyes to believe. Well, wait a minute. Do you, I thought we didn't need a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to believe, right? Um, and there are other examples. But also, and this is actually, for me, more fundamental, I'm, I'm actually one of those weirdos who calls himself a six-point Calvinist. Because, and we could talk about what the five points are, but there's actually something I'm even more convinced of than what we've been talking about thus far, and that is determinism. The idea that God has foreordained, predestined, predetermined everything that takes place in time. And I see that in all throughout Scripture. One of the best examples is in Genesis when Joseph's brothers, uh, they, they, try to, they are about to murder um, Joseph, but then they decide to sell him into slavery. And we all know the story, right? Joseph uh, is sold into slavery. He, he becomes uh, the second to Potiphar in Potiphar's household. But then Potiphar's wife accuses him of uh, trying to hit on her. Hit on her. Um, and so Potiphar has him sent to prison. And he spends quite a, quite a number of years in prison. But then because he interprets dreams, he, including pharaohs, he's elevated to the third place in all of Egypt. Um, and as a result of the, all of that and God's work in him, he is able to save countless lives throughout Egypt by coming up with this plan to prepare for famine. And when Joseph's brothers uh, finally are, re when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers years later, they weep and, they, and, and they're, they're broken. And he says, he says, don't be so upset. What you intended for evil, the evil you intended for me, God intended for good. The very same verb that is used to describe the brothers intending calamity or evil for Joseph is the very same verb that Joseph attributes to God's planning or intending that calamity for Joseph. So God's hand is at work throughout all of this seemingly tragic stuff that happens to Joseph, but it turns out that it was all part of God's plan to make this, this life-saving thing happen. Um, and, and I see that all throughout scripture. Uh, here's another one, um, and then I'll stop. I'll get off my hobby horse here for a minute. Um, do you remember when Abraham sends his servant to Nahor to find a wife for mm -hmm. Isaac? The, the servant, um, he gets to the well at Nahor, yep. and he prays, God, please let the woman you have planned to be Isaac's wife mm -hmm. show up here. And when I ask her to water, to provide me with water, she won't only water me, but provide water to me, but she'll also water my camels. Let that be the one. The text says that even as he's finishing that prayer, the, this woman shows up and does exactly what he prayed would happen. Now think about the countless um, acts of human agency, of human choice, that must have happened in just the way that they did for her to arrive on the scene right when he's finished praying. Um, she had to have been raised with the right kind of character to, in order to... Um, not only offer him water, but offer water to his camels. She had to have turned down any suitors, or, or her parents had to have turned down any suitors. And the text says she was beautiful, so no doubt she had plenty of suitors. But for whatever reason, and we know the reason, it's because of God's sovereignty, she, she or her family turns down all those suitors. She had to have been conceived at the right time so that she would be the right marrying age when, she, when he arrives on the scene. They, her household must have gotten depleted their water supply at just the right amount 
that would prompt her to come out to the well to get water at just the right time. And I could keep going. The point is, God answers a prayer, or he's at work answering a prayer, even before the prayer is breathed. And at the moment the prayer is finished, all of the, the, the culmination of all of those things that God has been planning and, and working in human choices uh, comes to fruition in her arriving on the scene just the way that he prayed God would make happen. That is, to me, not an exception to the rule. I see that kind of God all throughout Scripture. And so I'm thoroughly convinced that God, uh, that, that everything that happens in, in created space-time is what he has planned to happen. And, uh, and as such, that would mean that um, anybody who is saved is saved because God has foreordained that they would embrace him. In other words, all of the letters of Tulip just come, they flow out of this view of theistic determinism. So, so then what do you do with the person that says, well, my goodness, if you say that God has determined everything, all the rapings, um, the, the genocides, the wars, Hitler's, uh, Mussolini's, how do you even explain that? Because I could see somebody going, I don't want to serve a God like that that, that has determined everything. What do you say to somebody like that? So much. Um, first of all, I would much prefer to believe that God has foreordained those things to happen because there's purpose in them. Good, There's good purpose in what God is doing than to believe the alternative, which is God is choosing to not intervene um, when people are exercising their libertarian free will to cause tremendous pain and evil to people, to cause tremendous suffering. Even, even on the most robust defense of libertarian freedom, um, the fact remains, e even, if, even if there's some higher good uh, in, in giving humans libertarian freedom, and that's why he does it, knowing that people are going to use that to do evil, even on that kind of argument, the fact remains, Scripture is replete with examples of God stepping in and preventing things from happening. So when the little girl is raped or the genocide is done, do I want to believe that God said, you know what, I'm sorry, I, 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 I could have stepped in and stopped it, but I chose not to. Do I want to believe in that or do I want to believe in the God who says this is horrible, it's terrible, but there's purpose in it? Um, that I find far more compelling than the alternative. But it goes further. Well, but, but, but there are still questions that deserve to be discussed. Like, if God is um, determining all this to happen, why the evil at all in the first place? Um, you know, sure, somebody might be able to say, okay, there, there may be purpose in it. Maybe that's more attractive than the idea that it's purposeless evil that God just sort of is like a judo master and works cool stuff out of. But, but, but still, why, why foreordain it to happen at all? Well, think of what would what, think of what the world would be if there had never been sin and evil and suffering. It would be a world in which there would be no savior, and it would be a world in which we don't get to emulate God toward each other. God is merciful; He's gracious, but these words forgiving, but these words don't mean anything if there's in a world in which there's never been any sin or suffering, right? So, if it hadn't been for the reality of sin. Um, there, I wouldn't know what it is to forgive people. If it weren't for the reality of pain, I would have no, no knowledge of what it's like to comfort somebody. If it weren't for the reality of um, all these different things, of need, of lack, I wouldn't know what it's like to be hospitable to somebody in need. 
right? So by, uh, by foreordaining these things to happen, I think what God is doing is he's allowing us to experience a taste of, of what it's like to be like God in terms of character and behavior. And I think that's also a beautiful thing. So I think it's actually the most beautiful, not just biblically robust, but beautiful soteriology. So let's go back. What, what are then the chances that God has foreordained something that it won't happen? Well, on my view, that, that's, that's like saying, what are the chances that a square is a circle, right? It, it's, it's illogical. If, okay. if, if God foreordains everything, then okay. that means it will by necessity come okay. to pass. So it, it, in that, somebody would say, okay, well, if that's, if that's what you take, if that's the trajectory that you take, then how am I not a puppet? Oh, right. So the reason that we're not a puppet is because God isn't um, causing us to do what we do. There's, we're not, um, it, it, when we sin or when we um, come to faith or when we do anything that God has foreordained that we do, we are not merely dominoes that another domino hit, runs into when we fall. We're not puppets where a string is pulling our arm or whatever. When we make a choice to do whatever we, whatever choice we make, we are, we, we are influenced by a host of factors, our upbringing, our, our experiences, our prenatal development, our genetics, all of that stuff. But ultimately, we are making a choice, and God is not causing that choice. But that doesn't mean it's not predetermined. So here, here's, a, here's a very imperfect analogy, right? If you and I are standing 30 feet apart or whatever, and I throw a fastball at your face, you have the choice to stand there and let that ball hit you in the face. But we all know you're not going to choose that. You choose to dodge it or to catch it or whatever. And so there's a sense in which I can um, influence things to result in you making the choice that you do, but I'm not causing you or forcing you to do that. Now, that's a really imperfect analogy, but I think it captures the idea that just because something is determined, just because I am determining you to dodge that fastball doesn't mean I'm causing you to. Um, one other analogy that I am really attracted to is the relationship between the author of a story and the world of the story the author conceives of. So take, for example, J.R.R. Tolkien and Middle-earth, the, the world of uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and so forth. Imagine that we, ha we have to take the analogy a little bit. We have to put some flesh on the bones. Imagine that merely by conceiving of the world of Middle-earth and everything that takes place in it, that world actually is created and everything happens exactly the way that, that, that J.R.R. Tolkien conceives of. Well, in, in this hypothetical example I'm offering, at the moment that Frodo is standing at Mount Doom, sorry for nerd, people that aren't nerds and aren't fans of Lord of the Rings, but when Frodo is standing at the um, mouth of Mount Doom and, and he is resisting um, throwing the ring into the fire, Tolkien isn't pulling any puppet strings. There's Tolkien isn't doing anything at the moment that Frodo is deciding whether or not to throw that ring into the mouth of Mount Doom. T Tolkien is outside of created space-time, uh, the created space-time of Middle-earth, right? He's not in there doing this and doing that. Nothing is causing Frodo to do it. He is exercising, exercising his own agency to decide whether or not to throw the ring in. Now, granted, he's got influences, right? The, the ring itself is causing him to not want to throw the ring into the fire and so forth. But the point is, he ultimately chooses what he chooses to do without Tolkien causing it. But it is nevertheless predetermined by Tolkien having conceived of Middle-earth in, in playing out the way that it does. And I see the relationship between God and creation very analogous to that. 
God is outside of created space-time. He has foreordained everything that will take place in space and time, but everything that takes place in space and time that humans are choosing to do, humans are choosing to do it. It's just that their choice was predetermined by God. So I really think that we, I think we Calvinists, we, we people who lean reformed, need to um, steer, we, we need to resist this claim that we are somehow saying God causes us to do this or that, because I don't think that's what's going on. He has predetermined what we will do, and what we do, we will do, or, or what he has predetermined we, we will do, we will do, but he's not causing it. And I think that's an important distinction. So if that, if that is the case, then why do we have passages where whosoever will can come and choose this day whom you want to serve, and um, the spirit and the bride say come, and, you know, Jesus, you know, preaches, you know, to the, to the multitudes. Is there trickery there then? Is there trickery in the sense that there's these texts that seem, seem to say that God wants all to be saved, that he wants to bring all to repentance, that um, whosoever will, if, if there's really only a limited amount of people that are going to be, wouldn't we find that that would be in those passages? But it seems like those passages are invitations to everybody. Well, number one, um, I think those texts that you've mentioned are often proof texted in the way that you've described without really exegeting them. So for example, and I'll just mention the one, John 3.16 doesn't say whosoever believes. It says the believing ones, right? Um, but the point being, just because there are popular translations that render it in a seemingly universalist, universalistic way doesn't make that what it's actually saying. Um, uh, you know, so God so loved the world. Well, that. sure, but God loved the world when he saved it by saving one family in the flood, right? That, that God is not only concerned with each of us as individuals. He's also concerned with us as a corporate entity. And God so loved humankind that he saved humankind by saving the elect. So I don't, I don't see those passages in the same way you're describing. Another good example is the um, desires all to come to repentance. Yeah, all in a particular context. All of you is what the text is saying. Everybody that God has foreordained to come to eternal life, he, he wants to come to repentance and he waits for that to happen. Um, but but the, bigger, the bigger question are when there is this expressed desire for things to happen um, and those things don't happen, is that trickery because God has preordained that to happen? Well, I'm not, I don't think so. Um, when, if, if you talk to fiction writers, you'll, you'll hear them talk about the very emotional investment they have in the characters in their story. Um, when the protagonist in a story Take, for example, Braveheart. I was a big fan of, am a big fan of Braveheart. In fact, my wife and I quoted a lot. There's a lot of one-liners in that mm -hmm. movie that I love. When William Wallace, he is the, the, the protagonist in that story, um, but the author of that movie, or, or if it's based on a book, that I don't know, the author of the book, whatever, um, subjects, and granted, this is a bad example because it's based on a historical, uh, historical, but still, the point is, if it had been a story, the point is, the author gets no pleasure from subjecting his or her protagonist to the brutal torture that William Wallace's experiences in the final moments of his life. Um, and, and authors of stories, they, they, they want nothing but good things for their protagonist, but they still subject the protagonist to all sorts of evils. Why? Because it's part of the beautiful, compelling story that the author is telling. Well, by way of analogy, I'm suggesting that God, um, he, he, does he? There is one sense in which he wants everybody to be saved, and he certainly doesn't want us to 
to sin. In fact, the whole, the whole Mosaic law is about not sinning, the, the Ten Commandments. But there may be other desires he has as well, that, and, and he's choosing which desires to, uh, to bring about. Um, and they may not be able to be equally, you may not be able to get both. So going back to what I said earlier, if God desires us to emulate him and show forgiveness to each other and show mercy and hospitality to each other, that wouldn't be possible if he just guaranteed that everybody never sins and everybody never suffers. Paul writes that Jesus is the savior of all men, but especially to those who believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't that seem to imply that Jesus died for everybody, um, but yet it's only particular to those who believe? Could he have not have written it that Jesus only died for certain people and they're the ones that will believe? How do, you, how do you look at a passage like that? Well, number one, God did kind of inspire the authors of Scripture to do that because they, they inspired the authors of Scripture to, to record Jesus saying, um, I lay my life down for the sheep. And this is an analogy that's, that's um, he, he's, he's using the reality of shepherds and their sheep as metaphors. And nobody expects a shepherd to lay down his life for some other shepherd's flock. So when Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, that I think is an implication. He is implying that he is laying down his life only for his sheep. And by the way, the the text goes on to to have Jesus telling people that don't believe in him that the reason you don't believe in me is because you're not my sheep. If if the view that you're playing the devil's advocate for right here were right, then it would be the other way around. The reason you're not my sheep is because you don't believe. But he doesn't. He says the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. So I do. I already do see the authors of Scripture inspired to say that. But as to the specific text that you're talking about, I think what's going on there is, it is, is the reality that throughout all of human history, there's only ever one Savior. There aren't multiple saviors that anybody can turn to. All unbelievers still have only one Savior available to them, and that's Christ. But the reason why he's Savior, especially to those who believe, is because it's those whom he actually saves. So it's the difference between this, him being a savior to whom you can turn versus being the savior to whom you do turn. That's what I think is going on. Okay. For someone who's listening and they're cringing because they're just like, I, I just, I, I don't, how, how do you reach across the table and, and convince them that you're not trying to play gymnastics with scripture? You're not trying to take away something from them because th- there's, there's no doubt there will be people that listen to this. They go, that's not true in any way, shape, or form. You know, that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is um, a God that has given people freedom to make choices. He's a God that wants them to come, but they don't all come because it's a choice they make, not a choice that he makes. How do you reach across the aisle to somebody like that? Or is it, is it impossible? I, I reach across the aisle by saying, great, I'm glad that that's what you believe. And, and I, don't, I don't particularly feel a strong motivation to change their mind. Um, I, I have no problem fellowshipping with, ministering with, enjoying a meal with, hugging, embracing, all this stuff. Somebody who uh, is, is a Arminians or, or, or a provisionist. Uh, one of my friends and, and colleagues at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary is Leighton Flowers, who's well known for being a, a, an outspoken provisionist. Um, I have friends who are Molinists. Uh, I, I know people that I count as friends who are open theists. The point being, um, you ask, how do I re- reach across the aisle? I reach across the aisle by saying, hey, we can disagree here and, and work together in the way that we were talking about on our previous recording. We can take, we can lock arm in arm, despite our differences, 
and take this life-saving gospel to a dying world that so desperately needs what it. What do you say to the person who goes, well, yeah, but we can't lock arm-in-arm arm people on this stuff because this is so important. If you don't get this thing right, then you're going to miss a lot of stuff. I mean, this is, this is a central issue. Either Jesus really died for everybody or he only died for the elect. I mean, if we can't get that, how can you lock arm-in-arms with somebody who's preaching something different than you're preaching? Well, it's an interesting question, but the first thing I'd want to do is ask them the same question, but in reverse. Why couldn't we? Why, why does my, my pastor um, uh, of the church right here, Table of Hope in, in uh, Puyallup, Washington, he is not a Calvinist. We and I, he and I disagree on a lot of things, but we're able to minister to our congregation together. I, I get the uh, blessing of being able to preach on occasion. We're able to work together um, in ministry and all sorts of things, despite our disagreeing. Does he tell you when you preach to not bring up reforms? No. He doesn't no. care if you do? All he cares about is that I present what I believe with, with an open hand and, and say, but godly people believe differently. And, and by the way, it's the, the, when, when those we, we talked earlier about the early ecumenical creeds, when those Christians from around the known world got together to define the boundaries of Orthodox Christian faith, they didn't settle, the, you know, they didn't include... Uh, predeterminism pre, uh, or predestination. They wouldn't or even know either. the word Calvinism. Well, and so. that too, of course. Right. <laughs> so, um, so w- what then? What then to you are the non-essentials? Like, like I mean, where you know, like you say, okay, well, you know, this whole idea of soteriology, we're going to call that not something that we have to fight about. We can lock arms and have a disagreement there. Are there are there some things that you would go, okay? These are areas where I would not lock arms with somebody. Absolutely. What are those? So I I look for, when I look for how to determine what I think are the core essentials of the faith, there are two criteria I look for. One, I look for texts in scripture that explicitly say uh, in in some variation of the words, you can't be saved unless you believe this. So for example, um, Paul, when writing to Timothy, he talks about a couple of guys named Hymenaeus and Pilatus. And he says, they're going around telling people the resurrection has already happened. Not the resurrection of Christ, but the general resurrection. And he calls that, their, what they're teaching, he calls it gangrene. He says it's like cancer. He says it's shipwrecking people's faiths. So you've got the belief. So there you've got scriptural attestation of the reality that if you think the resurrection was in the past, you're not, you're, that's gangrene. That's not tolerable. And by the way, there are people who say that. They're known as hyperpreterists. They believe that all of scripture has been fulfilled. Um, another example, Jesus says, if you do not believe that ego a me, you do not believe that I am, um, you will die in your sin. Now, we can certainly debate what he means by that, but if one thinks what I think, that he is citing the divine name, he's alluding to the tetragrammaton um, in, in Exodus. If you believe that, then what he's saying is, unless you believe that I am God incarnate, you will die in your sin. And so that's another example where I think that belief in the deity of Christ is an essential of the faith. So that's one criteria, what scripture seems to say must be believed. Uh, another example, by the way, is, is salvation by faith alone. In uh, Romans, Paul says that if you think it's in any degree merited, then it's not, you're not, you're not, it's not grace. But the other criteria I look at is those early ecumenical creeds when Christians from a great a variety of backgrounds and cultures came together and, and defined the, the core essentials of the faith. So some of the things that I think meet both of those criteria are the Trinity, the, Trinity, the, the doctrine that God is eternally um, in three distinct persons, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the deity of Christ, including the hypostatic union between his divine and human natures. Um, Salvation by grace through faith alone, I think, is an essential of the faith. The physical resurrection of the dead, both of 
Christ and of humankind in the future are captured by those early ecumenical creeds. Um, those are that's a, there are a few others, but it's a very small list. It's when you get to soteriological debates and eschatological debates and whether uh, whether whether tongues is human languages or angelic language or whether tongues are the sign of being uh, baptized in the spirit or creation, right? I'm a young earth creationist, um, but I, I fellowship comfortably with my old earth creationist brothers in Christ and my theistic evolutionist and progressive creationist brothers and sisters in Christ. That's another place where I think we can um, agree to disagree. Um, and on and on, on and I could go. The list of things about which we can disagree seems to me to be far larger, far longer than the list of things that we have to agree on. Great. We're going to come back and talk about some of this soteriology again. But uh, thanks for thanks for the time. So sure. Far. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.